Hello and welcome to this episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. Today we're starting a new series called On Page and Screen, in which we look at interesting questions and talk about how are they handled in the on-screen versions, and how is that different from the, the comic book versions? And we're going to do this in partnership with uh, Will and Steve, the two great guys from the Hype is My Superpower podcast. Will, you may remember, he was with us on the Falcon and Winter Soldier podcast. We've talked a lot about their stuff. They have great perspective on comic books, so the two of them, as well as myself and Paul Hoppy, today we're diving into the uh, character of Daredevil and asking, how does he become a hero? How does he choose to become a hero, and what are the demons he has to overcome to do that? All that and more after a commercial break. We have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. I'm joined as becoming semi-regular, but not, not an actual co-host, to a guest, uh, Paul Hoppy. Paul, how are we doing today? <laughs> uh, pretty good. Yeah. I'm... Uh... Hyped for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> uh, also coming back was a, a regular during the Falcon Winter Soldier days, and I promised him that that was – his contract with us is not up. We're still going to have to keep getting him on. Uh, Will Freeland. Will, how are you doing today? Good, man. Uh, just reading every single Marvel comic that I can find the time to consume. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And uh, you've been podcasting for a while with your buddy Steve, who hasn't been on before, but uh, was gracious enough to come on as well, so we can have both of the guys from Hype is My Superpower. Steve, it's great to have you on. Great to be here, man. I'm really excited. Uh, I heard you joke in one of your episodes with Will that sharing a podcast with you guys gets a body on a uh, government watch list, but joke's on you. I've yes. literally, literally already been on one, so. <laughs> nice, nice. I, 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 I am as well, so we'll have to compare stories. About Absolutely. That Sounds you know? great. You know, I'm so glad to have all of us here, and I, I like this idea of talking about things, like I said, on screen and page, because, you know, Paul and I have mostly, as well as my other guests, we mostly talk about the on-screen versions of these things. But especially when we're getting into the heart of who is the character and what's the character about, it's often really interesting to look at what is the comic book version. And Will and Steve, on your podcast, Hype is My Superpower, you really do great jobs of saying, like, okay, here's this character, how is the story, you know, approached from this 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 writer or that writer or things like that? And so I was really excited for us to kind of dive into some of those questions. And the first one really is one that has, has been kind of, honestly, one of my, my favorite questions in sort of superhero media and about probably my favorite example of superhero media, uh, Daredevil. Hmm. And, you know, one of the central questions Daredevil wrestles with is, should I become a hero? And, and for him, it's not just the sort of like, do I have the responsibility or not? It's that I think he's really questioning his own motivations, in, at least in the show. He's really worried about... Why do I want to do this? Do I want to do this because I'm trying to make the world a better place? Is it that, you know, do, do I have to kill people? Can I do this without killing people? He talks about how the Murdoch boys have, have the devil inside and that he's, he, he's trying to figure out what, what's his purpose and why does he do all this? Um, what, what's your all kind of take on, we're going to get into specifics general, but just in general, how is that question addressed for, for Matt Murdoch? Steve, you want to go first? Oh, I want to go first? Okay, yeah. Um, so I I came into this with... with um, I, I've been doing a little bit of thinking in preparation for this pod, and I came up with an answer that I didn't expect. Um, mm. Because... So there's a lot of aspects to Daredevil's character, right, that are kind of adjacent to heroing and uh, and justice, right? He's a lawyer, he is disabled. He's blind. Um, he has, uh, you know, he's Catholic and he has superpowers. 
and all of these things kind of like uh, you know blend together to to make this um this uh mix of, of uh character traits but in in my own sort of um understanding and this is uh you know just it i i don't want to speak as a an authority on the comics representation of daredevil because my uh my reading of of daredevil in particular is not exhaustive by any means um and i kind of have we're never experts on this podcast sure (laughs) uh but i kind of have a gonzo take on on continuity within comics which is it barely matters and it's it's created through the repetition and through sort of this folkloric process of iteration and so uh i think that you know uh when you're talking about a character who they are um you're you are bringing together a lot of these different sources like you know film and and tv adaptations and in my mind they sit with equal weight as comics and it's just because the comics contradict themselves constantly and if you're going to try and hold that as a single source of truth you're going to drive yourself absolutely crazy or you're going to become comic book guy in the simpsons and be just completely (laughs) miserable so when i was kind of going through this stew of what makes daredevil tick why does he do what he does um you know i liked i i came up with it's it's not law law is a tool to him uh he is a catholic and that's how he gets his morals but that's not his motivation to me his motivation is his working class background is mm. uh identification with the little man and uh you know his, his dad being a boxer and down on his luck and it's this sort of uh drive to protect hell's kitchen and uh, and the innocent and the people within it that um that really form his motivation, which is external to his ethics and external to uh, his abilities. Um, I think that's uh, that's pretty spot on. I mean, so I've read a lot of Daredevil, and um, in for the for the vast majority of his time on page, he is always trying to. Uh, do what's right for the little guy to your point right and in the stories where he starts to lose sight of that are when he needs another street level hero to kind of put him straight again mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. um <clears throat> there's one <laughs> there's one time where he gets starts to get possessed by uh he gets chosen by uh the five fingers of the hand to become a vessel for this demon that they want to re- that they want to revive, and so Daredevil becomes. As you do, yeah, right. <laughs> and so Seems this is in the. I don't see anything. Wrong with this, <laughs> this is in the uh, Shadowland uh, crossover, right. and uh, Daredevil becomes the head of the hand, and uh, he starts getting this twisted view of how to lord over hell's kitchen and not protect hell's kitchen um and that's when it takes you know a whole bunch of other city level heroes to be like yo you know you're an idiot and go and fight whatever demons inside you blah 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 um and so uh i totally agree that there are other aspects to matt that um kind of help him uh 
uh, fight for the little guy, whether it's his practice in law and knowing the law is inside and out and, you know, what loopholes for um, tenants can he exploit to make sure that they don't get evicted or if it's uh, his Catholicism of, you know, always to, you know, um, protect thy neighbor and uh, this, that and the other or if it's his... um, Knowing the limitations of his abilities, he can't fly. He doesn't have super strength. So he's not protecting New York. He's only focusing on his, I don't know how big Hell's Kitchen is, but it's way smaller <laughs> than New York in total. Yeah, it's, it's quite <laughs> small. It's less yeah, than a right? square mile. And so, yeah. yeah, so he focuses on his territory and he keeps a watchful eye. His enhanced hearing can reach pretty much all of hell's kitchen but not all of the city or all of the planet he he keeps his abilities in scope and so he keeps his um watch in scope right yeah that makes a lot of sense and i uh paul want to hear from you as well but kind of just bouncing around it in conversation i especially like the point you you both brought up about sort of where he stands with the law Mm -hmm. because as i was rewatching season one and we'll talk more about sort of specific stuff we watched or read this week one thing I was very struck by is that it seems like a real conflict he goes through throughout the season is about, like, will he work within the law or outside the law? Mm. And there are times where he's like, I'm going to fix these problems by being a lawyer. And then there's other times where he's like, I'm, you know, the law can't help. I have to just go fist these things with my fists or with my iron pipes, which, of course, <laughs> never will kill people when you hit someone in the head with an iron pipe. Of course not. I just signed a contract. I have to mention that every time Daredevil comes up, now I can move on with my life. <laughs> um, but... The, but the point being, like, he he has that tension. And so I was really struck by, you know, in the last episode where he's talking about how he has to go out and, and try to fix something, he says, he says to Foggy, this is the part where law meets reality. Either I put on the mask or we risk losing Hoffman and Fisk wins. And for those who haven't don't remember this, Hoffman is a potential witness. Yeah. And to me, that was just such an interesting moment of, like, synthesis of those two because – He's not saying I have to go like kill Fisk because the law can't deal with him. He's saying I have to work outside the law to make sure that Hoffman can testify so we can get him within the law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I So first of all, I, I think you all bring up really great points. I, I love the idea of, you know, Matt as, you know, both as this like working class hero who, who you know, where his, his perspectives, perspective is informed by sort of by the structure of society and then also in terms of knowing his own limits like you know i'm not superman i'm not gonna fly i mean he doesn't know who superman is unless i guess the comics exist within you know (laughs) do dc marvel comics exist within the marvel comics universe and marvel comics exist within the dc comics you know i've seen i've seen marvel get referenced in dc properties a lot but i've i don't know if i've ever seen dc get referenced in, in, in Marvel, Marvel. Uh, yeah. I, oh, I, yes, I will yes. Say that in You're young, not Superman, young... you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, that's true. And, and in, in Young Justice, I will say my favorite version of this, there's a, um, I think it's like the, the Terrific Three or something. It, it, there's an episode of Young Justice that's all about, like, dealing with, no, I'm sorry, not Young Justice. There's Batman an episode Beyond. of Batman yeah, Begins. Yeah. yeah, Batman Beyond. Wow, I really know these things. There's an episode of Batman Beyond <laughs> where they're basically dealing with a satire of the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. They, it's just yeah, they fantastic. do that all the time in Marvel. Yeah. There's there's like five different versions of the Justice League running around, uh, most yeah. significantly <laughs> called the Squadron Supreme. And uh, 
They're so much fun too, though. Uh, That's awesome. And uh, yeah, they they uh, also take shot, you know, little veiled shots at each other. Uh, commonly, they in in like letter columns and editorial pages. They constantly refer to DC as the distinguished competition. <laughs> but Paul, as you were saying, yeah. So, so you know, I mean, Daredevil's not flying up into the atmosphere and using his his you know enhanced senses to hear all over the planet what's going on. Like he's in Hell's Kitchen, and I mean, Hell's Kitchen is loud. Like I grew up in Hell's Kitchen, so <laughs> you know, you probably can't hear that far beyond it. If if you had heightened senses, it would probably be pretty upsetting <laughs> as a child, right? As it was for little Maddie, but um. Yeah, I I uh I think you know there's um there's one what was it there's uh what I read this week was um Zadarsky's uh will recommended volume 14 in Zadarsky's run on uh, on Dare run of Dare, of Daredevil. Um I, re- I ended up reading volumes 11 through 15 because they're you can get them all together from the library as one volume. But um or I guess it's part what issues. issue issue issues, fourteen yeah. right? So it was volume three, but it, it's an issue yeah. fourteen, and he's having a, a conversation with uh, Detective Cole North, who had been in, in, apparently Daredevil killed someone, right? Um, and they're they're talking about like why they do what they do, basically, and you know Matt, who at this point is saying he's not Daredevil, um, just says. I can't turn away from the people in need. I just can't. Nobody should. Mm. And to me, that kind of sums up the sort of like hero's compulsion that I think a lot of these characters have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I just, I just watched a, a Batman animated movie and he tries to save someone who'd been killing people and was trying to kill him. And then he tries to save him. And Catwoman's like, you have to do this, don't you? And he's like, I had to try. If someone can be saved, I have to try. Hmm. And right. to me, there's often this just like, when you see someone in need, it's like, or you see, like, dare to, like Matt Murdock exists in a really broken world that's very corrupt, and he believes deeply in the idea of the law. But, you know, as you said, and as he said, you know, the reality of the law is often like, yeah, if you have a witness and that witness is going to get murdered, like, then you don't have a witness and you don't have a case. And so he's like, well, I'm just going to do what I can do as Daredevil so that Matt Murdock can actually use the law and not have a bunch of dead witnesses. Right. See, I'm not, I'm not sure he actually believes in the law as an ideology because mm. he's constantly okay. going around it. He's, you know, being right. a vigilante and all that. I think... He he believes in justice as something separate, and the law is uh, effectively one of his superpowers. Right. It's a tool for him, mm. you know. Yeah, I guess what I mean is, like, I think he believes in the idea of, like, a world where the law functions the way it mm. says it should. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I definitely don't believe that he believes it does function that way. But, you know, you make a good point that it's maybe more of, like, a tool than an ideology. I, I buy that. Well, and let me let me use this model because certainly in the TV show Daredevil, and I think this may be maybe part of what we're exposing is one way in which the the screen and print are different. 
although I, I really love Steve, what you said about like searching for the true daredevil. Kind <laughs> yeah. of the whole point is that there is no such thing because there's multiple canonical versions and it's all just about how we see the character exactly. with all these different versions. But wh- one of the things that I got out of the TV show Daredevil is that he feels very much to me like the Christopher Nolan Batman. Uh, excuse, leaving out the last of the three movies, just in like the Batman <laughs> Begins and Dark Knight. Because what I mean by that is it seems like he is both Batman and, as I understand it, Matt Murdock recognize that the police and the law are so corrupt that it cannot do what they should do, but that he has the eventual goal of, like, you know, going outside the law in order to rebuild the law. Right. You know, like, Batman very much wants Harvey Dent and Commissioner Gordon to be able to function again as they should. You know, he drops people off at the courthouse. Uh, and, and I saw Matt Murdock kind of doing the same thing. Like, he wants it to be that Fisk can't control the court and the law and the press so that those things can work without him. Uh, so I'm curious for all three of you, A, if you agree with that about the, the TV version, but also if that is actually fairly different from the on, from the on-print version. I think it, it in on the page, it's, it's really just, you know, these characters go through so many iterations and so many different storylines, and a lot of it is about putting them in a situation where different parts of them are tested. So... Right. Uh, yeah, I agree that that's, you know, um, a recurring theme it, that he is, it, it, I think it speaks to what justice means to him, that it's not pure vigilantism and that there is some sort of community accountability. Um, but if it doesn't function, then it's a, a much higher slog, but I think there are certainly, you know, adaptations or storylines in which the, you know, they 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 find a different part to to push on that tension, and it right. might function better or, or worse or whatever, or and he his reaction to it might change. Yeah, I I pretty much agree to that. That makes sense. I think the idea of justice is is actually a really interesting component of this because ostensibly on some level the law is supposed to be about some notion of justice and people often talk about vigilante justice right like as this idea and i think it can often be very problematic but i personally this might sound weird but i don't believe in justice um i mean i think justice is like an idea that people have that's like kind of squishy and Mm -hmm. Um, like I believe in helping people and I believe that it's, it's all very subjective, right? Like what we think of as justice. But I think often when we're thinking about like what we want out of the idea of justice, I think often, um, it's not necessarily, um, productive. And I think the idea of, of kind of just trying to make things better for more people um, you know, not turning away from people in need, I, th- I think is a little different from, um, from like justice. Right. Absolutely. You know what I would be really, you know, I, I haven't seen that I wish, I hope will happen one day. So I want someone with a law background to write Daredevil or advise on Daredevil because I would be interested to see how Matt reacts to going out of his way to save someone so they could be persecuted by the law and then their punishment being the death sentence. Mm. 
Mm, Wait, did yeah. did Charles Soule or Sole? I don't know how to actually pronounce his name. Did he did he never write Daredevil? Because he's a he's a Marvel writer and he uh, he's a lawyer and owns his own law practice. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, he did. Uh, okay, right. Yeah, <laughs> <He> wrote... <laughs> damn. Okay, because I remember so... he wrote She Hulk, and she's also a lawyer. Yeah, so Sole's run was uh, bef- just before uh, Zdarsky's current run. Um, but that revolved... Oh my gosh, that one was dark. Uh, they- <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> that, one, that one focused on, uh, for Daredevil stuff, uh, he, w- he spent a lot of his time training this new hero, Blindspot. Um who had who developed some stealth tech and uh helps uh daredevil go around and it, but it was also that was when matt became uh this is uh sorry souls run had um this is when fisk first becomes mayor and and fisk hires matt to be his um one of his direct reports, uh, 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 his uh, de- deputy mayor or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and so because he and he does that because he wants uh, Matt Murdock because he Kingpin doesn't know or Fisk doesn't know that Matt Murdock is Daredevil and yada yada anymore. It's been revealed right. and taken away a handful <laughs> of times, <laughs> but, uh, but Comics he, he still always has the he's always had this history with murdoch and so he wants to keep murdoch one for the public image of uh he has a lawyer to show that he's being legit but then also to keep an eye on murdoch to make sure he's not going behind his back to try to sabotage him right but and so uh souls run focused a lot on matt working in the mayor's office with a wilson fisk as the mayor of new york city oh uh, interesting it, di- it they, didn't they... it didn't do a whole lot in the courtroom <laughs> <laughs> well and i, I want to just say one or two more things about the, the the comment paul you were making about justice and then kind of and then let's, let's get into more about like what we each watched and read and, and how it connected to this question because mm-hmm. i think paul i think one of the really interesting things you're talking about is to me the justice you're talking about especially is like retributive retributive yeah right what the hell's the word mm-hmm. retributive justice the the justice you're really talking about is retributive justice, where it's all about like this person did something bad, and so they deserve this. And at least on the in the in this at least on screen, that's a very big part of Matt Murdock because it's very much the Catholic part of him. Mm-hmm. You know, he right. and the priest are always talking about mm-hmm. like, do people like Fisk get what they deserve? And is mm-hmm. it, you know, he at one point talks about like, am I God's instrument? Did God make me like this so I can give people what they deserve? So yeah, I, I think it's really interesting thinking about where is that role of, of justice for him that it's about you know punishing the punishing the bad people, not just stopping bad things from happening. Speaking of Punisher, um, <laughs> what I watched this week <laughs> was uh, episode three of season two, as well as some other bits, but uh, of, of the Daredevil Netflix show where Frank uh, kidnaps Daredevil. And has him tied up on a road uh, on the rooftop, and they have a, a long conversation that lasts most of the episode. I love that conversation. It's it's, it's great, um, and I've got some you know assorted assorted quotes that I wrote down. Um, 
where, you know, first Daredevil, and I'll call him Daredevil, and I'll call Frank Frank, because at this point, Frank isn't, like, the Punisher. I mean, he is, but mm-hmm. he doesn't have, like, the vest and stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't take off, you know, Daredevil's mask, because, like, I don't care who you are. Like, <laughs> you know. Um, but Daredevil's like, you don't have to do this. No one else has to die. You can walk away. And, you know, and Frank's like, walk away. Could you do that? Walk away? You know? Um, and then he's like, we don't get to pick the things that fix us red, make us whole. And Daredevil's just like, people don't have to die. I believe it ain't my call and it ain't yours either. And uh, and then later he says, you know, it's up to the law, not me and not you. And so, you know, the idea of like whether or not people should, you know, die for, for like doing bad things. I think like in that scene anyway, in that iteration of, of Daredevil... Um, it seems very clearly like he's like, look, it's not for me to decide. So that's why he doesn't go around killing people. And that's why when he does, I don't know whether he, uh, I didn't read issue 10, but <laughs> I don't know if he intentionally killed someone or accidentally killed someone or what exactly happened. Um, so at the end of Soleil's run, uh, Daredevil gets hit by a truck <laughs> <clears throat> and his body breaks and he uh, goes through this rehab process and it's called the story is called Death of Daredevil and it's Matt um, trying to get back into sh- into some sort of shape uh, where he can walk again his body has taken so much damage over the years of being Daredevil that uh, he's his life was immediately threatened. Yada yada yada. He's back outside and he's trying to take the Daredevil mental back. Uh, one of his first times out fighting crime, he accidentally kills somebody. Ah, okay. Um, and so, and which leads him down this spiral of like, should I even be Daredevil? Right. That that makes sense. And you know, I mean, so first of all, I think there's a huge difference between accidentally kill some killing someone while engaging in a violent struggle versus deliberately Oops, murdering these, someone. That's another one episode. of these uh, metal poles that I threw at somebody's head. Killed somebody. Right. Right. <laughs> but like, let's say someone's trying to hit you with a metal pole and you're trying to hit them with a metal pole and you hit them with a metal pole and kill them. Like you killed them. Right. But like, right. that's more of like a manslaughter thing. Um, whereas like you knock the metal pole out of their hand, they're on the ground and then you decapitate them with a shield. I mean, you hit them with a metal pole <laughs> and they're skull in. Just to take one random example. Just a, just a random example. I don't, I don't know where, how that, I don't know where that came from, but you know, just, just totally made up. Um, but like, you know, the, the sort of like, the paradigm I feel in a lot of comic book media is like, you can hit someone really, really hard and they'll be fine unless you intend to kill them or don't know how to use your powers. Yeah. <laughs> or the yeah. writers want someone to die, basically. Yep. There's a moment early in season one where he knock he basically throws someone off a roof into a garbage can. Right. And Claire is like, Oh my god, did you kill him? And he's like no, he's in a coma. And <laughs> I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand, being able to dial the amount of brain trauma and get perfectly on the coma but not death and will recover, that he got lucky. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's>... yeah. <laughs> but I, I think those are great points you're making because I think, I think I've always had the sense that that is a, a huge part of his wrestling is not just can I do this, but can I do this without killing people? Right. Which is, I think, another reason why the Batman connection comes to me. Of it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of, can I, 
is the goal to use violence to stop people or is the goal to use violence to protect people or to even to use that violence to be able to serve some other purpose like the law or the press or whatever it is? Right. I think this segues uh, naturally into talking about uh, kind of moving from his motivation to talking about his morals. Um, Mm. And I, I find it really interesting in terms of, um, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, can I do this versus should I do this? Uh, You know, we, we get into the sort of ethics territory and, Daredevil is interesting to me because he's the only hero that I can think of where his ethics are external to him and uh, come to him via his -hmm. Catholic faith. Most most, uh, other superheroes, it's a real sort of internal struggle uh, of trying to decide right from wrong. Matt knows right from wrong uh, through, you know, it's... You know, he doesn't question whether to do something because it may or may not be the right thing to do. He he questions whether the thing that he is going to do will be a sin. Like in the very first right. scene of the Netflix show. Uh, so my my preparation for this, I watched the first two episodes of the Netflix show, saw the hallway fight scene, and then immediately went to season three, episode four, to watch the prison fight scene. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and that was it for, for Netflix. But I also reread... Um, the the seminal uh daredevil story uh born again by frank miller and david mazzuccelli and uh i can talk about about that a little bit if if people are interested but it has very little to do uh surprisingly with his motivations or his morals uh right it's very straightforward kind of story and so in the very first scene of the netflix show he's in confession with uh, the priest and he he asks for for forgiveness crucially not for something he, he's not confessing something he's already done he's asking for forgiveness for something he's about to do mm-hmm. and i thought that was a, a real illustration of the way that um you know he he doesn't have to grapple or wrestle with right and wrong uh from an ethical standpoint um he has to <laughs> basically go through this uh ritual of uh penance and sin and atonement which in a very catholic fashion is aestheticized through lots and lots and lots of pain both <laughs> yes. both from him and his and the people he's um fighting against yeah i i i uh, yeah i definitely think the catholicism part is very interesting and and also relevant because it's not only that it's an external morality, although I think he I think he does spend quite a lot of time with his priest trying to figure out what's the most moral thing mm-hmm. within that framework. Mm-hmm. But I think what's really interesting is, I mean, that framework is itself a law. Like I, right. I my, my right. background is, is, is yeah. in education is theological and I'm a Catholic, but I studied with a number of uh, Jesuits for quite a while. And, you know, they, they taught like moral law. And Absolutely. so I think him being a lawyer, it's very important there that it's the you know, the legal system, but also the Catholic legal system and figuring out where exactly he falls in that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, in in that uh, example, I think it's particularly telling that uh, of all the justices on the Supreme Court right now, they're all either Catholic or Jewish, which yeah. <laughs> both, both theologies have a very legal framework towards uh, morality. And, very much so. And this is, you know, 
Protestantism is much more an internalized uh, ethics and, you know, your, your personal relationship with God. I'm also, so yeah, uh, just going real quick on, on Daredevil Board again. For, first of all, for anyone who, who hasn't read this before, I highly, highly recommend it. It's so good. Um, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, particularly for me as, as a, um, I, I'm, I, I write comics and just as a, uh, a general interest in the comics medium, uh, just absolute masterwork in terms of comics technique for, for narrative building and storytelling. Uh, but at the very beginning, uh, Karen Page, who, uh, because Frank Miller is a horrible misogynist, she's strung out on, on heroin and making porn movies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, she, uh, in order to get her next fix, she trades the, the one thing she has of information, and it's Daredevil's secret identity. And uh, you watch this piece of information uh, make its way all halfway across the world back to Fisk. And he, within the space of an issue, completely destroys Matt's life. He shuts down Nelson and Murdoch. He gets uh, Matt evicted from his home. He just uh, rain, cuts him off from, uh, you know, any relationship, uh, strains his friendship with Foggy, just every single aspect of, of uh, Matt's life is, is destroyed to the point where it gets to the point uh, and um, season three, episode four actually had a callback to this where once he's broken his mental state and his social standing completely, um, he finds somebody to beat the crap out of him, put him in a taxi with locked doors, drive it off a bridge um, with a bottle of, of liquor in there and frame, you know, frame his death as a suicide. And then, the joke mm. being, well, there's they never find a body, and so the rest of the rest of the trade oh, is okay. is uh, him building himself back up, uh, Matt, and then finally uh, taking down Fisk. Well, and interesting as you started out with saying this isn't really connected to the moral stuff, but we were just talking about religion. You said it's called Born Again. Yes, and, and that mm-hmm. to me that's fascinating because that's very much a. The idea of being born again is obviously a very religious concept, absolutely. But very much within Protestantism, it's mm-hmm. not something you find very often in Catholicism. That's really true. Uh, but it it is. Uh, it, I think it's more a it's more like a literal resurrection, like a, a it, you know, it, it's less about the sort of spiritual born again tradition and, and more about like his body is completely almost completely destroyed and he convalesces with Sister Maggie in. Um, in the in the church and uh there are a lot of just really conscious um allusions to uh biblical imagery uh with him in in sort of uh crucifixion like poses or la pieta um (laughs) and there's a a brilliant blog post by comics writer matt fraction about the uh the sort of uh comic studies and compositional techniques that Miller and Monticelli use in within these issues to, to sort of give this its, its full uh, weight a, as a piece of sort of symbology towards uh, Catholicism and, and uh, theology in that sense. Was season three of the Netflix show based at least, at least inspired by that comic? 
Yeah, I mean, I think a, a, a lot of the Netflix show was. This is right. kind of when when you ask somebody what's the one Daredevil comic, they'll point to this because I don't I don't think it's entirely like it again from from his essential like grounding as as a as a character. It you know the the one line that you get as to like why does Matt do what he does, which was kind of our jumping off point for for this podcast, and the the one line is on the very final page. And it's just, um, it's just Matt and Karen walking down, uh, down the street. And, uh, he says, my name is Matt Burdock. I was blinded by radiation. My remaining senses function with superhuman sharpness. I live in Hell's Kitchen and do my best to keep it clean. That's all you need to know. So mm-hmm. it's just a very matter of fact statement of like, this is just who I am and what I do. It's, <laughs> right. I don't need a reason for this. Right. It's I what mean, I am. My, my impression is that. And this is kind of true of a lot of like what the MCU and, and other on-screen things are, are doing. But that like the amount of navel gazing that's involved <laughs> in sort of the Netflix MCU characters, that that's there's some of that in the comics. But a lot of it is kind of the creation of moving it into the Netflix universe. Is, is that you think that for, for both Will and uh, Steve, do you think that's a fairly accurate statement? Will, you want to go first? Um, yeah, I think. I, yeah, I mean. Give I'll me, say, give me, a, give me a second to to gather. All right, I'll go first then. Uh, I think that it is. Um, I think it's more a a situation where they know that these characters are new to the audience, and they need to do a little more work establishing mm-hmm. them and establishing their sort of um, their their personalities and their moral struggles. Um, right, and also, you know. I don't. I don't know if if you go back to find to read equivalent issues on the timeline for the comics if they'll they'll be having the same sort of conflicts. But uh, a lot of it is uh, sort of genre conventions and the fact that you know uh, in the '60s and '70s, it, you know, it, a lot of these stories were more pulpy and you you didn't need right. to have this this. Uh, as much of a naturalistic uh, reflection on on heroes as people, although that well, was sort of the the innovation of Marvel at the time, as they were much more had much more inter- interiority and real life personal conflict than, for example, DC heroes. Right, and and I do know that uh, we we've been doing uh, with Jessica Plummer, who's another fantastic uh, comic book expert. We've been doing a whole series on comic book history, mm. and one thing we've talked about a lot is that since a lot of these characters came out of the time during the comic book code, which, which is by the 70s and uh, really fading, but was definitely powerful in the 50s and had some influence in the 60s, you couldn't have relatable villains. Villains had to be just like pure <laughs> mustache twirly evil, and our heroes had to be pure good. So I can imagine that I, I know Daredevil kind of comes towards, as that's really fading, but that, that a lot of our sort of concept today of the relatable villain and the villain who is sympathetic, that just wasn't really a part of the culture when a lot of these characters were first getting created. And the hero sort of being introspective and, and not being sure that they were doing was right instead of mm-hmm. just being like, yeah, I just do what's right because I'm the protagonist. That's how that, – that's the law or the code. Like, this is a bit of a, a diversion, but as, as part of that, I looked back at some old uh, – some of the original X-Men comics. Mm-hmm. Magneto is not a relatable villain. He's no. just like mustache twirly with a crazy magnet on his car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They they 
they they have added and then taken away and then added so much to Magneto over the years. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Will, have you uh, been had a chance to bring together your thoughts and share the wisdom? <laughs> the wisdom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I will say that. So my comic book uh, experience, and I, I say this like every time I talk about everything I've read, uh, really is only focused on the last like 20 years now. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, maybe like 15 years ago, there's been a bigger push for this whole like um, get a more in-depth full circle view. Nobody, nobody is 100% good. Nobody is 100% bad. Um, of every character and uh you i think i feel like that set up a lot of what we get to see in uh especially the netflix shows like when you get introduced to like fisk and and you see their growth or like even like black mariah and and luke cage and all that kind of uh see where they're coming from and but i also feel like that's kind of the uh that's what people want these days. Yeah. Um, they, they want to know why they want to dislike this person. Um, it's not enough to just say, well, this person wants to rule the world. They want to know why they want to rule the world now. I don't know. Right. Everybody wants to rule the world. <laughs> yeah, there's a good song about that. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. One so we'll inter- go ahead, Paul. Uh, I was just gonna say one interesting thing about one interesting thing about um, the Zdarsky run that I read part of was how relatable Fisk was. Also, mm-hmm. despite right? oh my being, gosh, I, forget, yeah, I mean it's really good. It's right? really good. Uh, honestly, Matthew, if you're gonna read any Daredevil comics, I'd, I'd recommend it because I think the <laughs> Fisk line is like really. Um, it's just it's just great, and Wesley, and oh, it's uh, blowing my mind right now. <laughs> it's a different Wesley, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, like a different person, or a just different a... person also named Wesley. Yeah, there there's a Wesley in Born Again, uh, but I looked it up on the wiki. He he died, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Fisk found himself a different Wesley. This guy right. is for, the 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 current guy in Sadarsky's run. His first name is Wesley, whereas. Uh, you know the the one in in Born Again. His name is like oh the last name something was yeah <laughs> yeah okay that's funny <laughs> yeah I was losing my mind on this volume when Steve and I were talking about it with like Daredevil's arc is interesting but I'm so in love with Fisk's arc and yeah so so tell us about it for those who haven't read it oh my gosh okay uh so this is Fisk so everyone knows. Wilson Fisk as the kingpin of crime and everything is in the shadows and everything is shady and he it's all backdoor deals and all this other kind of stuff, black market stuff. And so as he has gotten his way into public office and now he's the mayor of New York City, he has this pride and he holds kind of the mayor on a pedestal as far as like, I'm the mayor, you should listen to me now. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to do everything by the book and in in the spotlight now. And so uh, there's a difference. But now, but then in this volume, the third volume of Zdarsky's Daredevil, uh, 
you we get introduced to the people who are above the office in a sense mm-hmm. um the the uh the people like if if it turns out that uh uh well uh, so like the Jeff Bezoses of the world and stuff uh that are involved in New York and the people who have quote unquote the real money and the real power in New York and the mayor of New York City now gets invited to this house and this lunch uh with the other power players that are the power players in the spotlights and and in the day and he finds out within that one lunch how out of the out of his own depths he actually is and oh interesting um yeah and it's all insecure he's yeah and and this is the first time with the exception of a marvel max kingpin origin run that i've read uh that you actually see wilson like break and he like actually feels in over his head he had a moment of weakness where he falls back into his like crime crime boss days and did that approach and then (laughs) he snaps out of it and he's like that is not what it was supposed to happen (laughs) and uh it's him reeling from that how do you cover that up how do you deal with it and then how do you face the power players that you just met that you just met then you've been trying to impress to get into their good graces because you can't do it the same way you used to it's like i don't want to give anything away because i want people to read it but um it is it is so much fun oh it's confirmed it sounds amazing and i think in the tv show and i'll get more into that in season one because that's what i really focused on this last week but his insecurity is such a big part of it and his sense of like Mm -hmm. even just the conversations with nobu and madame gao you can tell like he he's a little obvious, like he's a very big fish in the small pond of Hell's Kitchen, but in terms of this like supernatural stuff or the larger things happening, he has no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the Fisk in the Netflix um, is uh, it's weird to say, but he's more controlled. Like mm. um, uh, one of the things this is kind of a tangent, but one of the things that I love about Doctor Doom so much is he knows where he stops. Like right. he knows how mm. far his his reach can get, and yeah. when he and if he sees pre- a plan going haywire, he'll he just he'll out. abort it. He'll yeah. abort it before yeah. it actually puts him in any risk. Exactly. Right. He see he sees where it's going to fall apart, and if that's going to if it's going to end there, if it's not going to end well, then he's like, okay, I'm out. I'm going to, I have other things to do anyway. I'm going to go do that. And so, and I see a lot of that approach in the, um, D'Onofrio Kingpin, uh, right. Fisk. And, uh, where he's, he's more calculated. He's taking his time. And a lot of the Kingpin's origin is that where he worked his way up through the, through the mafia. And, um, you know, he saw where he wanted to go and he put things in place to get there. Uh, but you only see that in flashbacks because every time we're introduced or we see Kingpin, it's already at this, at the height of his power. And so he's got this ego. And so when you get to see a Wilson Fisk on Netflix kind of move up and become the Kingpin, Mm. that's, that's when, that's when you really get to see like, okay, he's, he's calculated. He's, he's got a vision. He's going to go and execute it. This, he, he knows what he wants. 
Well, it's interesting, though, because I'm going to talk a lot more about Fisk when I get to the stuff I watched, but one thing that I definitely got out of it was, I mean, I think season one of Daredevil is as much his origin story as Matt Murdock's. Absolutely. Because part of it is, throughout the course of the season, he is slowly losing control. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at the start, he's got this great team, and then... He has to kill the Russians, then he has to kill Nobu, and then uh, Madame Gao leaves, and his mother is no longer in safety, and Vanessa has to go away, and he has to start like killing people directly, and um, you know he, you know his anger at Daredevil at the end is that like I had this great plan and you ruined everything, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things I love about it is we get to see him being like less and less and less in control, um, mm-hmm. up to the point of uh, you know. I don't know much about Kingpin, especially not from the the comic books, but I have, um, you know, I, I you see him in Spider-Verse, Into the Spider-Verse, which is a very different kind of Kingpin, but still a great character. But also in the Spider-Man video game, <laughs> I'm calling it kind of a deep cut here, but in the Spider-Man video game, you know, the first person you fight in the in kind of the prolo- prologue to that game is Kingpin, because the whole, the whole game is about a world in which Kingpin's in jail. But so... You fight Kingpin in that early fight, and his it's like signature move in the fight is to put his head down and like charge at you. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know if that's a signature move in the comic books. I'm guessing it is because it's only after he's had this like major awareness of who he is and really accepted the Kingpin in the fight he has with Daredevil. He keeps putting his head down and charging right at Daredevil, and I was like, Ah, I've seen you do that move. I saw you do that move in the video game. <laughs> This this goes straight into the sort of the portrayal of Fisk in uh, in Born Again too because he he gets so upset and obsessed with killing Murdoch after he it turns out he can't find the body that he ends up um, uh, getting somebody to find uh, Nuke aka Simpson from uh, from the Jessica Jones show um, mm. and has him operate with. A flamethrower and a rocket launcher and a machine gun right in the middle of uh, Hell's Kitchen. Real subtle. And just starts blowing things up. And uh, it's uh, the Avengers come, uh, you know, after a long fight, the Avengers come to sort of finish it all off. And uh, and then Captain America uh, is, you know, freaks out because this is a guy who's wearing the American flag. And. Oh, goes and, and hacks the government, which you can do, you know, very easy. And uh, and finds out, you know, kind of connects it back to Fisk. And um, and that's what what sort of uh, takes uh, takes King, Kingpin down after a, you know, climactic fight between Fisk and Daredevil as well. And it, it yeah. is this sort of, yeah, overreach, doesn't know when to stop, both in a in a physical sense and in a sort of metaphorical sense. Right. Well, and so this is actually a good time for me to just, I, I've been referencing it a lot, but let me just kind of go into more what I watched this, this for this, for what I watched leading up to this episode. Cause I just did a deep dive into season one. At first I was like, I'm going to watch episode one, get some of the setup <laughs> and I'll watch the episode two to the hallway fight scene. And I was like, well, you know what? I don't know exactly. And then I, I wanted to watch his scenes with the Catholic priest and I didn't know exactly where those were. So I'll just watch all of season one. Yeah. <laughs> but but one thing I was very struck by was how much Matt Murdock's story and, and the questions he's wrestling with are the exact same as Fisk's, you know? And mm-hmm. you can go all the way back to 
Like, both of them have this very traumatic experience of their father's death, though obviously in very different ways. But two, throughout the course of the story, both of them, like, I think truly Fisk wants to make the city a better place. And in in, in many ways, it, it for both of them, it's motivated by what happened to their father. Matt doesn't want his father to be killed. The, you know, Matt doesn't want more people to lose their father to the criminal underworld that his father died to. Fisk doesn't want more people like his, like he doesn't want more kids to be abused by the father like he was. But either way, they both have this fundamentally altruistic, I want to make the city a better place. And they're both willing to go outside the law in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Fisk, obviously, to a much greater extent, and Fisk doesn't have the same compunctions about murder. I think, But I, both of them see... Go ahead. Sorry, I think there there's a slight distinction that's necessary is I think Fisk wants to make the the city a better place for him and Daredevil wants to make the city a better place for his neighbors. Hmm. I I think Fisk wants to make the better I think Well, are you saying that's mostly from the comic because in Netflix oh, right. my this is this Fisk, is looking yeah. at Netflix. Sorry. Okay. Moving oh yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah. Well, no, but that, but that's actually a helpful thing is cuz I think and that's kind of what I'm going to get to is that I think in the show, at least, Fisk says he wants to make it better for other people mm-hmm. so they don't have to go through what he did. And and, mm-hmm. and the blending there is is very legit because the point that I'm getting to is that I feel for both of them, they're not sure if they're monsters. Like, you know, Murdoch goes to the priest and says, like, you know, am I doing the wrong thing? Is this what God wants me to do? Fisk goes to, you know, Vanessa and says, like, am I a monster? Was I wrong to kill my dad? Am I wrong to do these things? And Vanessa kind of plays a similar role to Fisk as the priest does for Matt. Hmm. And then, of course, by the time the show ends, they've each kind of accepted who they really are, with Matt accepting that he's the hero and with Fisk giving that amazing ill-intent speech that Hmm. I, you know, just accepting I am a villain and that's who I am. Yeah. But to me, the thing that's most interesting about it is there's this tension throughout of them realizing that they're both very smart and they're both very able to justify things to themselves. And I feel like that's right. the one of my favorite mm. quotes in the whole season, I think for many people, is this quote from uh, the priest when he says to Matt, "There's when Matt's saying, like, I don't want to have to kill him, but I think I do, there's a wide gulf between inaction and murder, Matthew. Another man's mm. evil does not make you good. Men have used the atrocities of their enemies to justify their own throughout history. So the question you have to ask yourself is, are you struggling because you don't want to kill this man but feel you have to or that you don't have to kill him but want to? Hmm. And to me, I mean, that last question is so essential, but I, I focus actually even more on the earlier part of it, which is men have used the atrocities of their enemies to justify their own throughout history. Absolutely. Because I yeah. think that's the biggest place they differ, at least in the show, is Fisk is able to say, my father did these terrible things. I have to do the terrible things to stop them. Matt is able to kind of stop himself and say... I, I, I know, I, you know, that there's a self-righteousness of killing the bad people, but he's yeah. able to stop himself. Right. That's a great point. It's also a callback to um, uh, season one, episode two, where, you know, Matt and uh, Claire are up on a roof and he, with this, uh, um, the Russian guy who he later drops off the, the, um, off the roof. And Very accurately into a dumpster. Very right. accurately. <laughs> he also earlier dropped a fire hydrant on the guy's head from like 
you know, eight stories up or something. Extinguisher, so, yeah, yeah. You have a fire extinguisher, Traumatic sorry, yeah. brain injury just does not exist in this world. And we just nah. have to right, right, it. right. Moderate brain injuries are just very popular. <laughs> but uh, right after giving another another line, which I was obsessed with, where she says, you know, I find a guy in a dumpster who can do all this really weird shit, like smell cologne. Oh, I'm sorry, is this a family-friendly podcast? Eh, no. Curse a little bit, we're fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, like smell cologne through walls and sense whether someone's unconscious or faking it. Slap on top of that, he can take an unbelievable amount of punishment without one complaint. And Matt says, well, that last part's Catholicism. But right <laughs> after that, so again, the aestheticization of pain and, and the, yeah. you know, uh, the sort of Catholic penance and redemption. But right after that, uh, he, he's, he's torturing the guy and he, he says, you know, uh, I I enjoy this basically. Yeah, it, I, I should have written down. I need you to know why I'm hurting you. It's, right. I'm, it's not just. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I'm I'm saying something different. So you you keep going ahead. I, it, it's it's a, I don't I didn't have the quote exact quote written down, but it's something very very much along those lines. And and Claire, you know, stops him afterwards and says, "I didn't believe that part where you said that you enjoy this." Yeah. I, yeah. And I thought that was a, a really really crucial line in in trying to like. It parse his his ethics and and his motivations, right? Yeah, I think so because I think my sense is that there is a part of him that thinks he could enjoy it, but that he's that he he also doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's more so that kind of like you know, do I have to do this or not? Yeah. So I, I've I've got a whole bunch of things I want to respond to that you go all just it. said. Um, I kind of so, gave like, like a ten minute speech, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like I agree with like most of what everybody's been saying. Um, but the um, oh, the one thing I, I want to uh, what were you just saying? <laughs> I Me to or Steve? To that first, both uh, about enjoying. Uh, oh yeah 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 so basically the uh, so like hitting people can be fun (laughs) until like they're hurt you know and then it's like it cannot be fun but i mean it could be different for different people obviously um that probably could have come out differently but like you're speaking (laughs) from experience I am. I am. Paul is so, a martial artist. He's not like a street mugger. Just to be right, sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, yeah. I spent decades learning, you know, to fight in a controlled circumstance where nobody's supposed to get injured. But sometimes sure. people do. And it, it it can be very upsetting. But there's also sometimes like, like kicking people in the head is like fun, you know, <laughs> and like. Like, it's like when it's like a game, right? But then, like, when they're bleeding out of their face, it's like, oh, this, this is not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, there, you know, there's, there's the, the phrase earlier in, in the season and throughout where, you know, Matt talks about like letting the devil out, basically, right. you know, and, and that it's, it, to me, it seems like it's this kind of like zone he gets into, you know, where, like, that's a part of him. And it's not like he's like, oh, I want to go beat someone up because I want to, but because there's kind of something inside of him that, you know, does enjoy the violence on some level, which right. is different from enjoying, like, the injuries that hmm. people get, you know? Um, and so I, I just think, I think there's a lot there with that. Um, and Claire says, I think she says something like, you know, I wouldn't be helping you if I did believe you know that that you enjoyed it 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that informs a lot about her motivations as well. Um, in terms of Fisk's motivations, uh, I grew up in Hell's Kitchen in the 80s and lived there until two, 2010. And when I was born, Hell's Kitchen basically got the name Hell's Kitchen. Not not because I was born, uh, but like around the same time. <laughs> Paul's Kitchen, a.k.a. Hell. Exactly, exactly. Um, and... Like I lived in this building that had a bunch of performing artists. It was it was subsidized for performing artists. It was like these two towers with a plaza and like a lot of security and it felt like this very safe little village in this very dangerous neighborhood, right? Like West Side Story was um set in in Hell's Kitchen and the idea is like that there were these gangs from from different groups and then they were fighting and you know there was a lot of drugs and prostitution and not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that in and of itself but there's you know when when they're illegal then there's a lot of crime often violent crime that that goes along with that and in my lifetime like starting in the 90s and then going through the aughts the the neighborhood became very gentrified right and you know gradually but to the point where when i thought about moving back there in like 2012 i think um i looked at an apartment that was like it was like $2000 a month and it was like a like a like a large walk-in closet was like the whole apartment and there were 70 people online to look at this open this this open house where they were like and it was it was like a fifth floor walk up too it was like all the thing and there was no air conditioning you'd have to like put the unit in the window and i was just like what happened to this place and it's just a very interesting experience and so watching daredevil like that's what daredevil season one is about right like and it's about a gentrification process that's really already happened. Like the Mrs. Cardenas, mm-hmm. Mrs. Cardenas can't afford to live in Hell's Kitchen by the time that show is being shot. Right. So you mean that's already happened in real life or in the show? In real life. Right. Yeah, exactly. So the Daredevil, the Hell's Kitchen of the Daredevil TV show is Hell's Kitchen of the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. Right. Um, it's not as it is today. And they, they kind of lampshade it. They're like, oh, yeah, like, uh, there was the big battle and the Avengers and aliens and stuff got blown up. So, you know, that's kind of part of why it's how it is. But, like, in, in the MCU or in the Netflix MCU, there was never the gentrification that took place in the 90s is kind of yeah. my feeling, right? right? And what Fisk is doing is he, like, wants to do that. He wants yes. to, like... I don't think he, in the series, wants to make it better specifically just for himself. I think he wants to make it better for people with money. I think Mm -hmm. he wants to make it better for some people. Whereas Matt wants to make it better for the people who already live there. For the people who call it home. For the people whose neighborhood it is. And, you know, I I think that's a really interesting conflict. Because it's a very real world one. Like, in the 90s and the aughts and, like, now, like... You can walk around Hell's Kitchen feeling safer, probably, oh, than yeah. you did in the 80s or the 70s. Like, I miss my bus stop, I get off the bus, and there's a dude with this, like, plastic baggie just filled with crack vials just in his hand, like, walking in front of me. I'm like, okay. And, like, I literally, as a 10-year-old, got offered to buy knives, you know, by people on the street. 
But I mean, like I, when I first went over to your house when we were yeah. in high school, my father yeah. was really worried. He was like, I don't want you right. to that neighborhood alone. Yeah, yeah. That was like ninety four, right? Yeah. So there are aspects of gentrification where we're like, well, for some people, this is going to be a more pleasant experience. But for other people, like, they can't afford to live in their homes anymore. And Fisk is like, whatever, I don't care about those people. I care about the people with money and building something that, you know, that will look nice on the outside. And if you can afford it, can be nice. But, you know, everybody else be damned, basically. And to me, that's what makes him a villain, aside from his methods. Is that like he's he's very classist, which is funny because he grew up like not rich or anything, but I think he bought into the kind of whole meritocracy, everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, Absolutely. and rant on gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's a great point that the they're they're able to make, you know, Michael Bloomberg or Rudy Giuliani yeah. the uh, <laughs> the arch villain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it feels like he's Giuliani, honestly, because he was the yeah. one who kind of initiated all of that, and then definitely, you know, then Bloomberg continued. And I think that there's something like I, I think I would just argue just a bit that I I think Fisk genuinely believes that he is helping the people who live in the tenements that he's offering to buy them out and move them out. I mm-hmm. I think, and mm. but then it gets into the thing like that the priest said of you know it is very easy to convince yourself that you're helping when mm-hmm. you're really not. And that I think mm-hmm. that's the difference is that Matt lives with those people. Matt listens to those people. Matt actually knows what they want. Whereas Fisk has this much more paternalistic, like, Oh, I, I know what's best. I, I am sure that, yes. the, you know, I, that she doesn't want to live in this building with all these, this, you know, criminal element. I should just help her move out so that Nobu can do whatever the hell he's going to do. That kind of thing. Right. Yeah, he's dig up some dragon bones and achieve immortality. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, total like divergence, but the show made me so angry watching Mrs. Gao be such an incredible character and knowing how much she gets misused in later. Oh, yeah, yeah. For real. Yeah, Madame Gao's so good in Daredevil and, you know, she's in the other series too. (laughs) I also want to talk Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I I just had a question for Will whether this this same sort of. a classist vision of Fisk is present in his current mayoral run in the comics. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Like, no, not at all. (laughs) He's, he's, he's kind of working with the, uh, the, the real like billionaires and the movers and shakers and the people with, he is controlling. We haven't seen, we haven't seen what his goal is with meeting those movers and shakers. Right. Mm, Uh, it got that entire uh, plot got sidetracked by him losing his cool. Sure. Right. And then him having to deal with the repercussions from those movers and shakers for losing his cool. So, um, what, like, because the way it's framed is uh, he's going to go meet the big wigs and his goal is to impress them. And so we don't know uh, where he's going to go after that. Uh, most of his so um, for those wondering how Fisk could have even become mayor <laughs> um, <laughs> there was just look at our own world no, <laughs> oh yeah yeah absolutely so <laughs> for those like four years ago or yeah four years ago or just like how but, the heck yeah. could Fisk have possibly become uh, the mayor of New York City uh, there's a storyline called Secret Empire um and Manhattan gets enclosed in a giant 
dark force dimension bubble uh no in and out and everything is super dark and uh fisk is going around and using his influence this is before he's a mayor so he's using his like underground influence to go and save the people of new york and like Mm. keep the baddies off of them give them food and water give them light give them shelter and every single time he does this he tells the people he helps remember who helped you today because it's never any of the heroes it was me remember who held you remember who helped mm-hmm. you so after the 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 storyline ends and the and the force and the dark force dome goes away he enters as a last minute candidate for the uh mayoral run and everyone's like wait he helped us vote and so they so using their short term memories they all vote for fisk so fisk <laughs> in as the mayor is a man of the people uh, publicly mm. so um the whole the the gentrification idea isn't necessarily present because he is his his stance most of the stuff he's been doing is i want to keep the people safe and so he's been doing an anti-vigilante run mm. okay um because every time a superhero gets involved the uh property is destroyed and someone's house someone gets evicted for weeks before um damage control can rebuild their apartment kind of a thing so i really wonder what renter's insurance is like in in the new york city of Washington, <laughs> you know? like yeah property yes. damage insurance like do like if thor destroys something is it actually literally an act of god from the insurance <laughs> standpoint you know? right right These there's act of god and then there's act of a god like that <laughs> that would be two i feel like two different clauses in your insurance coverage because mm-hmm. they love yeah. to get all legalese about it <laughs> is this just an alien who was worshipped by humans that we're talking about <laughs> or something that we can't explain and... so that that would actually be a great other show is to have a tv show about like an interest of, uh, in insurance appraiser you know, just like living in this world, trying to yeah, get these kind of things. Very niche. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, that's a good. Yeah. So here's a question uh, I have for, 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 for all three of you, but especially for Will and Steve. The other theme that I really picked up on more this time I was watching the first season that I hadn't picked up on as much before is how much this idea of being the devil or the devil is so significant to this show. You know, mm. and that obviously it's it's part of the name that Murdoch claims by the end. But early, like one of his first conversations with the priest is about whether or not they believe that the devil exists. And mm. one of the things I find really striking is, and this is something that I, I mean, I will do podcasts about theology all day, and I'm not going to try and go <laughs> too far into that. But one of the conversations that often comes up when people talk about theology is of the devil is that one of the dangers is that once you say this person is the devil, once you say like these people are working for the devil, then you get back into that thing the priest warned about of anything is justifiable to stop them because they're literally the the very embodiment of supernatural evil. Mm. And what I love is that there's that scene, but that there's then a scene where Matt goes and talks to Vanessa and it's a super awkward scene. I think one of the worst written in the show. I hate it for that reason. But, but, but even putting that aside, he talks later to his priest and says, you know, I realize that this, this woman has such genuine love for him. And can a man be the devil if someone loves him? Like, he, he sort of has a... He sees the humanity of Fisk. Right. And, and, and to me, there's just such a connection between, like, labeling someone the devil, seeing someone can't really be just the devil because they're just a human being anyway. 
to then talking about the devil in, in himself, and then Paul, as you were saying, like accepting that part of him. It, is that wrestling with sort of this idea of the devil as both a theological concept in Catholicism, but also in terms of how it marks good and evil and who he is himself? Is that a part of his story at all in the comics, or is that all from the <laughs> show? <laughs> well, uh, it's not really a part in the comics, uh, primarily because in the comics we have an actual devil. Morpheus! Several Morpheus! We have uh, multiple interpretations and realms of hell, and they all have their uh, lords of hell, of each of those hells. Uh, the, the most Mephisto being the, the most have, direct. Yeah, and then we've got Mephisto, who is your classic... Uh, interpretation of what the devil is uh Mm -hmm. and because we actually have a devil uh there isn't necessarily this conversation that matt struggles with of viewing somebody as a devil because he knows that mephisto is just over there (laughs) right (laughs) metaphorical concept paul and i were talking about this before about how like to me like in a fantasy world when the gods become real people like when the gods exist as characters it's not religion in the way we, we think of today. Like religion today mm-hmm. is very much about the mystery of language for that, which is unseen and unknown. Mm-hmm. Once the devil exists. Yeah. He, that no longer works as a metaphorical concept of evil in humanity. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So they like, and I, I, I think they're how they deal with that is then it becomes a question of right and wrong versus, who is the devil and like and what's evil kind of a thing right i don't know it's it's it's, it there there isn't a easy answer other than no matt does not view others as the devil because he's punched the devil (laughs) (laughs) oh he actually has come into contact with mephisto himself oh yeah almost every hero in marvel has dealt with mephisto to some degree Okay. Yeah, that that does change the theological concept of it for sure. <laughs> like, so you believe in the tough. literal devil? Yes, I punched him in the face. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. The whole trope of sympathy for the devil, sympathy for Mephisto. No. no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and then one of the related con- uh, question to what I was talking about before is this idea of there being parallels between Matt and Fisk and them wrestling with similar questions, but then going and finding different answers. Is that also at all in the comics or is that also just created by, for the show? Mm. Uh, Well, I think, I think they are shown as opposites primarily because Kingpin as a character is an easy opposite for both the lawyer Matt Murdock and the vigilante Daredevil right? as Wilson Fisk and as Kingpin. Um, and also Matt as a working class hero versus this sort of, you know, rich overlord of crime. Yeah. So um, it's never like explicitly shown, but like Kingpin, because Kingpin was originally a spider-man villain Mm -hmm. uh and so he kind of ended up getting adopted into daredevil because it just fit better um for for lack of a real explanation uh 
and and so like they're 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 natural opposites of uh you know same side of the coin kind of a thing but uh it's never explicitly gone into uh that much of a like let's show the parallels between each two between each other mm-hmm. kind of a thing yeah sense. i feel like if it were to happen at any point it would it would probably be happening right now because uh to my knowledge they they've never really given uh kingpin the sort of run as a character and the amount of screen time and interiority or page time and interiority in the comics as they did in the netflix show except for right now yeah with this mayoral run yes i i feel like what i just read though like not to contradict but just to say that you know there were parallels right like Mm -hmm. like matt is messed up and kind of trying to figure out who he wants to be after losing control maybe it wasn't control like anger control but like he didn't do things the way he wanted to do them as daredevil and so he stopped being daredevil and he's questioning himself the whole time and meanwhile fisk is going to try and do things differently goes a little bit sideways and and i feel he's kind of questioning himself in the same way in terms of like i'm gonna try and do things a different way but sort of you know is it working I don't know. I guess uh, I didn't finish the series. I guess it's yeah. ongoing. Are are those? Is that recent? That's a recent. Yeah. So that volume three just came out. Um. Gosh, just end of last year, I think. Oh wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So so it feels to me like they're they're not playing with um parallels with the like super clear in your face way that especially season one of, of Daredevil does in the Netflix show, but that there are kind of parallels you can draw and similarities to their stories. Um, and and Fisk does get, I guess, a lot more page time here than in in previous stories. Yep. Um, and it's presented more like a character with, like, we hear his internal monologue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we just, don't, we just almost never have gotten that um, before this la- these last couple of years. I wonder if and that's I think a bit that of... was inspired by the show in a large part in Donofrio's yeah, uh, performance. Yeah, because that, that's and... the other question here is we, we're always talking about how the comic come first and how do they influence what's on screen. But now the stuff's been on screen long enough, I'm sure it's, be, it's being reversed. And now the comics are being influenced by what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's popular yeah, enough, too. I mean, the, 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 the actual readership of these comics is quite small. And, you know, they're always looking for new readers. And a lot mm-hmm. of that means keeping concepts relatable and characters relatable mm-hmm. to uh, to audiences who experience them first in adaptation. Right. So the, Have you seen that? This is a totally off topic question, but just a quick curiosity. Is that happening with the look of these characters? Like, is Thor looking more and more like Chris <laughs> Hemsworth or uh... Captain America looking more like Steve Rogers? <laughs> Will hates this. It's, it Nick bugs Fury's me so much. Oh. <laughs> it's so it's so unfair that it bugs me this much because like it's that's it's life. It's, it's, it's what sells. <laughs> I get it. But um, yeah, it, this the the biggest influence has been Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, they they made so when Chris Pratt became Star Lord, they completely redesigned him. They gave him a completely different personality. He was this he was the stoic type. He he had short uh 
uh dark brown hair he was he was like this jaded angry man and then guardians happened and now he's this trench coat wearing happy go lucky let me go <laughs> date kitty pride from across the galaxy he was just became a completely different person and um they did that with uh with drax they didn't really do it with groot or rocket but um the the other the biggest mcu uh uh impact was that they changed the colors of the infinity stones from the comics oh, weird. and then just like a couple years ago they changed the colors in the comics to match the mcu Mm-hmm. and even the characters are like wasn't this green before <laughs> <laughs> and they're like yeah i don't know what happened that's so strange like they all <laughs> acknowledge it but no one right. asks why and it's just <laughs> you know this, none of this bothers me at all i know i i, I want to put this on record that i think that it's it's if you find something that works stick with it you know yeah there's no yeah. primacy over the comics and just just go for good stories yeah. you know uh, i mean i, I like what happens the reverse yeah. like the moment of luke cage looking at his black exploitation outfits from the early 70s comics and being like no, <laughs> oh, yeah. no that that's not it you know <laughs> right yeah the, the little homages like when like just making jessica dress Jessica's up as jewel yeah. for a scene yeah. it's hilarious yeah. it's great so i think we're uh, about ready to uh oh, show that again so we're, we're go, we've gone on pretty long here. Is there any kind of last things any of you all wanted to add to the conversation? I'm sure there's much more we could say, but kind of just give a chance for if you want to bring up one last point or, or make one last question. I, I have one real quick thing, and that is it's interesting to me that Daredevil's disability didn't factor into our conversation at all because mm-hmm. it seems like that would be a larger part of his of his uh, of his story and sort of the essential part of his character, but. It, it really, it doesn't fit into his ethics. It doesn't fit into his motivation. Uh, it mostly serves as kind of an overwrought metaphor for the blindness of justice. Right. <laughs> uh, but also as sort of scaffolding for his powers and this sort of, uh, you know, super cripple trope that I would, that uh, I've seen, you know, friends of mine who are disabled and disability activists have, have commented on before. Um, where, you know, uh, and it, it's, you know, he's, he's not fighting to make Fisk install wheelchair ramps in any of his properties, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't inform anything about the character other than right. give him superpowers. On the other hand, in the comics, it makes for a fascinating aesthetic challenge and opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, depicting Matt's sensory perceptions, uh, his not, you know, non-visual sensory perceptions in a visual medium. Oh, I can and see I'm thinking, that. that sounds interesting. I'm thinking specifically of... Uh, Mark Wade's? Uh, yeah, Mark Wade and Chris Samney's run uh, did as incredible a job on this as I've ever seen. And you have, like, a two-page spread where um, Foggy and Matt... I actually have this as one of the my computer backgrounds that cycle through because I am just so obsessed with this image. Um it's a two-page spread where they're walking, uh, you know, just crossing a crosswalk in New York and just kind of commenting on what's going around. And, you know, ostensibly Foggy's leading that, although he doesn't need it. And he's kind of saying, like, oh, turn turn here. There's an open, man, uh, an open uh, you know, 
um, uh, basement uh, grating or whatever, and you see an inset uh, panel of that open manhole uh, grating, whatever, but it's um, in the sort of wireframes of his radar sense. And he's like, oh, I want to turn here to follow the girl with the tea tree oil shampoo. And then uh, in a completely different color style, you see an inset panel of the girl's hair. And it, it's sort of denoting uh, smell as the sense that's operating oh, that here. Oh, sounds very cool. And, and then another one where, it, and then Foggy says, you know, uh, not not the girl uh, window shopping over there? And he says, no, she's she's got a smoker's cough. And then it com- another color scheme to denote oh, that awesome. it's his hearing and she's coughing. And just, uh, there's, there's another one uh, covered by Paulo Rivera where it's um, all of the sounds of the city and it's the whole cover, it, all of the, like, uh, instead of colors, it's all in black and white. And uh, the line work... Uh, kind of the shapes contain the sound that that thing is making written in letters. So it's like there's a bird and the wings say flap, flap. And there's, you know, a, a water tower and it, it says, it's written like whoosh on it and stuff. It's just like unbelievable. You know, the car going by, it says honk on it. It's just like <laughs> That's great. all of these different ways to uh, depict blindness within a visual medium is just unbelievably cool to me. And, uh, it all, I also want to shout out, uh, that there are, uh, efforts out there, people making comics accessible to, to blind people. And right. you can, um, uh, go and look up sort of comics for blind people. And there's all sorts of like visual comics, tech, uh, tactile and texture comics and, uh, or sorry, audio comics, uh, just different ways to, to make the comics medium accessible to blind people. And I think that, that is, Super, super cool. Right. I would love to see Daredevil adapted in that medium. Well, I, I definitely, so I, I think it's a great point you raise, and I uh, I think you, you spoke to some of my thoughts on it as well, and it's a topic I've commented on uh, at length on this podcast, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a kind of last quick comment about it, but, but Will or Paul, do you want to jump in at all about that, about sort of uh, his disability in, in terms of this conversation of why he becomes a hero? Um, yeah, I, I guess I don't have that many thoughts on that specifically. Um Partially because I do think it's the sort of like, you know, his powers offset that in a way that, you know, the extent to which his disability functions as a disability is, I guess, reduced. I don't know. Um, Or in terms of just the way he is, you know, out in the world. Uh, What I will say is that I feel the TV show is one of the most well, like, done shows I've seen in terms of sound design, sound editing. Mm. Um, they mm. really did like sometimes specifically just, you know, the heartbeats and stuff like that. Um, we hear something scraping on the ground. We hear things kind of more the way Matt hears them, but also just all the time. I feel the sound is so deliberate, so crisp. And I mean, the music's also amazing, but it just, um, there's there's a level of attention to detail when it comes to sound that you don't always get, you know, with every show. Um, and also, I, I remember when it first came out and, you know, they have this show with a blind protagonist and they didn't have the, you know, audio descriptive version right away. But I think they got that up really fast. And I think it was the first Netflix show to have um, an audio descriptive channel so you could listen mm. to the show with, with that. Right. Um, and, I you know, 
Which I thought you... that was cool that they did that, and and now a lot of shows have that mm. on Netflix at least. Yeah, that's awesome. I I would just say as someone who I'm I'm not blind, but I am disabled, and, and I definitely see it through the lens that you, that you mentioned the the phrase and. Just to make people clear, we're not. Um, this is a phrase that disabled people use to describe this this uh, trope of the super cripple, because the idea is that it's the the person who ostensibly has a disability, but then their superpowers allow them to compensate for it so dramatically that a disabled person is probably not going to see anything they can relate to in that mm. in that example. Um, and I do think um, I think part of why it doesn't kind of what you said, Paul, like you don't think about his disability much because it doesn't actually affect his character that much. It doesn't seem like. And so for me, I, like when you compare that to say Toph Beifong from Avatar The Last mm. Airbender, which I think is a, a, and I've heard from many blind activists and, and blind friends of mine, like that that is a very powerful um, mm. representation because her blindness does affect her and limit her, but but then she uses her powers to compensate and change for that. So I think that's, for me, I think I think that's why I've, I've not much connected to it. And I, I know I talked to, when the show first came out, I was very involved in some disability politics things and kind of this question came up and a number of the blind activists I talked about were saying, well, yeah, like Daredevil's never been a character we cared about because if there's ever been a medium that is like less accessible for blind people in comic books, it's hard right. to find, um, <laughs> you know, which is not, not it's a great, still great way to tell the story, but just that was coming up. And therefore, I think what you're saying, uh, Steve, about the the ability to have kind of like braille comic books or comic books where there's descriptions of the graphics and things like that is, is super accessible and super important. Uh, and I do like that Netflix did that, but, but yeah, I, th- I think that's for me why there, there have definitely been disabled characters where I think I or other disabled folks can often relate to it. And to be clear also, like there's no one voice of any community. I'm, I'm sure there have been some blind people or other disabled people who could really relate to Matt Murdock. And I think that's fantastic. But I think that that's why for me it doesn't feel like a part of the character discuss because it just it, it it isn't a part of a disabled uh, experience that I can resonate with in any way. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I I'm kind of in the same boat as Paul. Is like <laughs> I feel bad that when I think of disabled superheroes, Daredevil isn't the first one that comes to mind, and that is kind of odd to say. But because um, like. I for whatever reason I and I feel like it's because it's like oh hey did you know I think of Hawkeye before I think of Daredevil because mm. Hawkeye is uh, partially deaf and he wears right. a uh, a hearing aid and in the comics it's not in the comics yeah sorry yeah a, in the comics a point people are very frustrated about but yeah go on and <laughs> it's and it's like never brought up and then until they want it to be part of the story that they're telling um, but like. That com- that comes to mind, and then I think of Echo, uh, Maya Lopez. Mm-hmm. She's deaf, and uh, she has photographic reflexes, like Taskmaster, who people will see in Black Widow when it comes out. And I I don't know if he has photographic reflexes in it. I haven't watched anything, but um, she has photographic reflexes, and she uh, she compensates for whatever, for lack of a better term, by reading people's lips. And, um, for like, and that's how she like listens to you speak. And so she tries, she never, she hates teaming up with people who wear masks because she can't tell what's mm. going on. And so there always has to be someone with their like mouth showing to coordinate with Echo on what they need to do next. Um, and so I think of, I think of Hawkeye and Echo before I think of Daredevil. And I think a lot of it is because Daredevil has this amazing radar sense that 
more than compensates for having no sight. Like he can his his yeah. his enhanced abilities lets him he can use his fingertips to read a newspaper because he can feel the change in the ink on the paper. Yeah. Like And to me that's a perfect example like Top yeah. Beifong, a running joke is that she can see so well many things, but when people hold something up for her to, to look at, she's like, you idiots, I can't read that. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah, exactly. She can, she can sense, like, movement of people around and stuff, mm-hmm. and she can read kind of structures, but she can't read ink. She can't. And if she's, you know, say, on a sky bison in the sky, like, her manner of compensating doesn't doesn't function in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Exactly. All right, well, folks, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think there's so much more we could go into, but we're now pushing the 90-minute mark, which I think is about where we really try to keep a limit on. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you get four people with a lot of ideas. This is going to happen. But I think I'm this sorry, is a... Matthew. No, no, yeah. this is great. Our, our, fault. That we're definitely our fault's always go along. Uh, <laughs> as I've joked at the beginning, since the four of us started chatting, that um, I think maybe sometimes where one or two, where two of us or three of us get together can also be a good thing, speaking as the person who has to edit now this four-track audio. <laughs> Um, but I also think this is a great, Sorry, a great conversation. So, Will and Steve, for people who are uh, hearing you guys for the first time, or maybe Steve especially hearing for the first time, and want to know more about like your podcast and where they can find you, uh, let them know what they need to know. Steve, it's your first time here. I'm going to let you introduce. Oh, thanks, bud. Yeah, we, we have a podcast called Hype is My Superpower. You can find it on Apple, iTunes, Google, Spotify, everything anywhere you like to listen to podcasts that's where it is um and yeah uh go listen to us we we talk about uh whatever comics we've read in the last week and uh it's it's kind of a storytelling slash book club podcast mostly we just uh we hang out and try and make each other laugh um yeah steve blew my mind on our last episode (laughs) i'm still reeling from it Oh, good. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't ever want you to get better. Um, and then I, I also uh, I also write comics, as I mentioned before. If you're interested, it's called The Pros. You can find it at theprosecomic.com. Anything else you want to plug, Will? Uh, no, go and find us on our socials. Ask us some questions. We'll reply to you yeah. and listen. And, and then you have to listen to our pod to see when we answer your questions. Yeah. yeah. That's how they get you. And I, I will say, I'm not a comic book reader, and... Often when people are talking about a story that I haven't read, it's just, you know, I'm shut out of the conversation for good reason. And so I just turn it off. You all do a great job of explaining enough of the story that I can follow along and be a part of the conversation, which I really appreciate because it it makes it an interesting conversation. It also means I don't ever have to have to actually read the comic book. I just, you know, get it from you. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there's a the great podcast. Definitely check it out. I'll have the show notes for, uh, in the show notes. I'll have a link to that podcast as well as the stuff Steve's doing. And, of course, Paul, thank you as always for being a great guest. Paul does uh, writings and videos and stuff that you can find by searching for Zen Madman on Twitter, you know, places like that. So definitely check that out. And, of course, this podcast is part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. So on that network, you can find great podcasts about the MCU, Star Wars, Star Trek, um, so many other great topics. There's a podcast called Animation Deliberation. They do uh, all sorts of great stuff about animation. They've done a great thing, a uh, uh, great run on Invincible, which is a great show that came out on Amazon, <clears throat> based in a comic book. Very worth checking out their coverage. Uh, and they and I are going to record an episode. Oh, sorry, they and I have just recorded an episode. One more time. They and I recorded an episode on Invincible that uh, will probably be out on Superhero Ethics by now, by the time you're hearing this one. But definitely worth check that out. 
and I'm currently in the midst of doing uh, episodes with them jointly about the Bad Batch on my Star Wars Universe podcast. We're doing that kind of in concert together because it's Star Wars and it's animation. And then we also have guests like Paul, uh, Sarah Hayashi, uh, and Brian V. Klein, all of whom have been part of that. So check all that out. And if you want to give feedback for this episode or any of the stuff that I do, uh, it's all under The Ethical Panda. So you can go to theethicalpanda.com to find all the podcasts I'm a part of. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter uh, by searching for The Ethical Panda, or you can email us at theethicalpanda at gmail.com. There's so many great conversations we started here. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Love to hear what you think, seeing the comics and the, and the show, how it influences you. So please reach out. Let us know. So on behalf of myself, Will, Steve, Paul, thank you all so much, and have a great day. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you.